please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We are uh, going to go passage by passage through the book of Romans. Uh, Paul wrote this because he could not get to Rome to visit the church, so he wanted them to understand what he'd been teaching. And it was the, the most full expression of what Paul taught about the gospel and how it meets our needs. He summed it up thematically in the first chapter that he is describing a gospel that is the power of God for salvation through faith, that a righteousness of God is revealed in that gospel. A righteousness from God as a gift to us by faith. And as soon as he gets done saying there's a righteousness revealed, he says there's also a wrath revealed in chapter 1. And he says that wrath is against the ungodly, against the immoral, unbeliever, who's irreligious. And we look at them, he uses that phrase, they. We look at them and say, yes, they are worthy of judgment. And then he flips the tables and says, well, you who judge, you do the same things. You're guilty of exchanging the glory of God for something created just as they are. And so you also are under judgment. If you're, even though you are uh, a moralist, even though you're a very moral person and a decent neighbor, you're still under the con- condemnation of God because all have sinned and fallen short of what God's standards are. Well, he anticipates someone who hears this and says, yeah, but I'm not just moral. I know God's will. I know His law. I'm religious and moral. Religious according to what God has revealed. And he's going to say to that person, you also, standing before God, in your own religion and in your own performance, will have no excuse. You won't stand in judgment. And so this is going to feel, I think, for many of us, quite close to home. Now, let me say this. If if you are here regularly, week after week, we're in a section of Scripture that is uh, about our need in front of Christ. It is about our sinfulness. It is offensive to us. It is hard to hear. Uh, It is painful. But it is what Paul said and is what God inspired. And so we want to study it. If you're visiting with us, I want you to know that our ordinary pattern is just as the Scripture focusing on God's grace that triumphs over judgment and over sin. Most of the book of Romans, 16 chapters of Romans, two of them are on the nature of our sinfulness. 14 are on the grace of God that overcomes sin. We're going to get there. Stay with us. Today, we have to take a a good look where our religious hearts lie so that we will see how deeply we need those 14 chapters of grace. For only as we understand where our hearts really are do we appreciate and, and love the grace that Christ gives enough. Before we read, let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you bless the reading and study of your word? Would you help us distrust our religious activity, but trust in Jesus? Trust in Your Spirit to bring us into His redeeming work to receive a righteousness as a gift. I pray that You would help us see our need before Christ and then to take great joy and delight in the grace that is offered to us in Jesus. To Your honor and to Your praise and to Your glory we pray. Amen. Romans 2, 
beginning in verse 17, after he's spoken to those who were very moral, he specifically addresses those who were very religious. Verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is God's Word. It is completely true, and it is utterly trustworthy. If you drive through downtown St. Louis on the interstate, you, you, you go by this uh, section of town where there's a lot of sort of old, dingy, somewhat decaying-looking buildings. And there in the center of that section of town is one really magnificent-looking one. It's about 12 or 14 stories tall. It's got sort of really sharp, beautiful orange brick. The windows are fresh and clean. And uh, inlaid in some of the brick is just really magnificent mason work. Uh, arches and obelisks sort of built into the wall. It is really, uh, it just stands out. It, it sort of sings of, of life in the midst of this sort of decay. It's, it's a cool location. And as you drive by and get a little closer, when you go around the corner, you, you notice that three sides of the building look like that. Beautiful and well-kept and magnificent, and you get to the fourth side, and it looks just like the buildings around it. Sort of decay. The windows have the wire in them, I guess, as a safety feature. The place looks like it's kind of run down and graying and dingy, just like the, the neighborhood that it's in. And if you look really close, what you notice is that which looks spectacular turns out to be a, mur a mural. It's just paint on a wall. And the uh, building is the old Edison Warehouse Store building. It's been largely vacant most of the years since the warehouse left it. The uh, picture of this building looks so good on three sides, but as soon as you get to the inside, you see that it's just as lifeless as the decaying neighborhood around it. I think that's a perfect picture of what Paul says when religion 
occupies the surface of your life, but not your heart, you are like that building. You look very good on the surface, but as soon as you walk inside, it's vacant and empty. And and, and what Paul would say is, then it's worthy of the same judgment as the empty life of the immoral pagan we read in chapter 1. It's worthy of the same judgment as the moral person who judges but does the same things he condemns. You and I are worthy of judgment if our religion is still just on the surface. That's Paul's point. Now, I want to show you how he makes that case. He is talking to people who are religious and active and they're not really just in, in those pagan Roman religions, but in Judaism, the revealed religion of God, the one that Moses brought, the one the prophets spoke in. They look to the Scriptures and honor it. They have, for the day, good doctrine. And Paul says, your good doctrine will not be enough to save you. Look at, at chapter 2, verse 1. There, or not chapter, verse 1, verse 17. If you call yourself, chapter 2, verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, let's just stop there. The person he's talking to is pretty honorable, right? This is a person who professes faith in the, the God of the Bible. If you call yourself, if you profess yourself to be Jewish, if you say Moses was right and the prophets were right, I am a believer. And you rely on the law. You rely on what God has revealed. You acknowledge what God has revealed to be the truth and the one place you can build your life. And you boast in God. You speak highly of God. You think of Him as your God. He's in your life. Your boast is in His presence in your life, not in other stuff. Right? This sounds like a decent person. And in fact, I think we could rightly say it today if we were to update it to this audience, what Paul would want you to hear. If you call yourself a Christian and rely on the Bible and boast in God, He is talking to me and you. This is us. If you are that person, the professing believer, and, verse 18, and you know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, Doesn't that sound like us even more? You say, I know what God wants because He's revealed it. Not because I'm somehow insightful, not because I have special dreams, but because I'm instructed by the law of God, by the Scriptures, by what He's revealed. I hear and I know what God wants us to do. Doesn't this sound like us? And we approve. I don't just look at the Bible and say, that's what God wants. I look at it and I say, And it's good. Right? That's who Paul's talking to. A believer, a professing believer, a person who honors and boasts in God, who relies on the law, knows what God wants to do, approves what is excellent, and gets it from the Scriptures. Verse 19, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. Now, a few of us, our humility, uh, you know, it, it, measurement goes off a little bit right here. I don't know if I'd call myself an uninstructor to the blind, but let's just be honest. Don't you think 
You have some things you could tell the people who are living immoral lifestyles, wandering around aimlessly, looking for something that will fill their life. Don't you say, I actually know where you can find it. Don't you think you have something that would offer to someone who is like a sheep without a shepherd, Jesus' words, and say, I, I have some real good ways to live. Don't you look at people who are living destructive lifestyles and say, if you would obey what God says, you would find that destructiveness starting to evaporate from your life. You'd find a more lively, healthy way to live. Don't you feel that way? If you approve of the Bible, you most certainly do. I know where to find guide for the blind and light for the darkness. Verse 20, if you are an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you look at God's Word and say, it is the embodiment of knowledge and truth. This sounds like you and me. This is, we're the people he's talking to in this passage. And particularly, if you think, I've got something that can help. I could teach children. I could help people who wander in sort of foolishness because I've seen the right way to live. That is, that is you and me. This is describing us. I, I actually kind of hope that you feel like, uh, I hope you claim all of this. I hope that you say, yes. I rely on the Bible. Yes, I boast in God. Yes, I call myself a Christian. I hope that you know His will and you approve of what is excellent. This is, if I were to sum it up, good doctrine. This is believing the right things about God. I hope that you have good doctrine. I really do. But Paul says this afterward, after he has asked you who are people who know things about God truly from the Scriptures, consider this. You then who teach others, verse 21, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. As soon as he gets through getting my attention, he undresses me before the law of God. Because I say, yes, if you steal, it is bad. And then I turn around and steal. Isn't that what we do? Now, you may say, I don't know if I steal. I remember when I was a kid, and I had there was that little gum jar on the counter, and the the, the, the clerk at the grocery at the gas station wasn't really paying attention, and I slipped one out and slid it in my pocket. But I only did that as a kid. I haven't done it in a long time since then. I think stealing is bad, and I don't steal. Well, you might not steal some things. But do you recognize that every time you gossip, that is to bear false witness against the neighbor, you steal their reputation? And, and you know what? False witness doesn't necessarily mean I say a lie about someone. It can be that I share a, a true criticism and a true weakness about someone just to the wrong person, someone who's not involved. And which of us isn't guilty of doing that and we've stolen their reputation? How about this? If someone sins against you and you start to feel that heat of anger burning up 
and, and a sense of I, I want to get revenge and that, that sense that I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold this against them. And that grudge sits in our hearts. Jesus calls that murder. What it really is saying is this. I refuse to recognize that you are made in the image of God and worth my time. You don't deserve me. And now I've stolen their worth. You're not worthy of forgiveness. You're not worthy of relating to. And I've stolen from them their worth. At the end of the day, what you're going to see is that all of God's commands are connected. And that as soon as you break any of them, you've stolen. If you envy, if you covet, you are having in, the, in your heart the seeds of, of, of robbery, the seeds of stealing are right there because you look at their life and say, I want what is theirs. And Jesus has made the point with adultery, as we saw last week and as we would see here, that even if it's adultery of the heart, even if it's a desire to look on other people and say, that person is here for my benefit and my pleasure, and we treat them as objects instead of made in the image of God, we're committing adultery in our hearts. When you steal in your heart, you're committing theft. And you're breaking God's commandments. God's commands extend to the heart. I recently heard a preacher say it this way. You know, if you're driving down Highway 25 at 65 miles per hour, and you go by that state trooper who's got himself hidden, you're doing the speed limit. That state trooper does not care why you're doing it. You're doing the speed limit, he is fine. You can be going down saying, I'm doing the speed limit because I think it is good to have authority over you and I love having people who will protect me and I love my neighbor and I think driving safely will make them safer. Or you could be driving 65 because your car won't go faster. You could be driving 65 with rage in your heart that hates every authority over you and you think this is wrong and I should be allowed to go faster and you could be angry with bitterness in your soul toward that state trooper who's there. You're the reason I have to drive this slow. And he does not care. Or, we're closing in on tax season. You may file your taxes and take that envelope to the post office and slide it through the, the slot and say, I am so thankful to live in a country such as this where I have freedoms and protection and safety. It is a joy to pay my taxes. Or, more likely, you'll take that envelope and you'll resent every step from your car to the slot. And you will be thinking, I know better how to spend this money. And, and, and those fools in Washington are just going to waste this and every part of you hates it. You know what the IRS thinks about your motives? They do not care. They just want the check in the envelope. It's enough to be on the surface, but not for God. God says, as soon as you have the seeds of theft or adultery or murder in your heart, you're guilty of breaking those commands. And you who say, don't steal, stealing's in your heart. You who say, don't commit adultery, adultery is in your heart. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? All right, now, I want you to go through the grammar with me, okay? I need you to bear with me here. The, the passage has three parallel sentences. 
He says first, do you preach against stealing and then do you steal? You're against stealing, but you do it. Then he says, uh, you say don't commit adultery, but you commit adultery. You're against adultery, but you do it. Then he says, you abhor idols, you're against idolatry. Then you rob temples. It doesn't sound like it's the opposite. In fact, it sounds like a guy who says, hey, that temple deserves to be robbed. They deserve it. So I'm going to go steal their money and go spend it on something better like, you know, myself. Because it's empty. But that's not really the idea. Robbing a temple was someone who wanted to take one of the statues home and build a little personal shrine. And so, when he's speaking to these religious Jews, he says to them, do you abhor idolatry and yet you take the shrines home? Well, of course, none of them would take a shrine home. None of them would go and take a statue of Artemis and, and take Artemis home to their house. So what does this mean? Paul's saying, you abhor idols. You look at the people who worship in, in Zeus's temple. You look at the people who worship in uh, Athena's temple. You look at them and look down on them and you won't worship those gods, but you will go home and bow your knee to peace and to prosperity and to honor and to your reputation and to your achievements and you worship everything else. You steal from that temple, even if it's not their little gods, it's another god, you build your own shrine and you're guilty of idolatry even though you abhor it and teach against it. And because of you, God is not honored. And remember, what was the problem that we had with the immoral person in chapter 1? It was that he exchanged the glory of God for something created and denied God his honor. What was the problem in chapter 2? The beginning, it was, it was that this moral person holds himself as a judge over others and exchanges the God who is the righteous judge for himself, the unrighteous judge, and he dishonors God. And now you... And I, we take the religious things we know about God, we take His commandments, and we say, look how good they are, and then we dishonor Him by doing the opposite. Every one of us. We dishonor God because we can't keep His commandments. And it leads to blaspheming by the unbeliever. It says, in verse 24, For as it is written, the name of God is blasting among you, among the Gentiles because of you. Uh, probably a year and a half, uh, maybe two years ago, a year or two years ago, Ricky Gervais, the kind of caustic British comedian, uh, he wrote an article for the Easter holidays called Why I'm a Good Christian. And that's clever because Ricky Gervais is a very public atheist. He says, I'm still a good Christian. Uh, here, here are some of his words. I won't read the whole thing. The title of this one, his article, is a little misleading or at least cryptic. I am, of course, not a good Christian in the sense that I believe that Jesus was half man or half, and half God. But I do believe I'm a good Christian compared to a lot of Christians. It's not that I don't believe the teachings of Jesus wouldn't make this a better world if they were followed. It's just that they are rarely followed. Gandhi summed it, really like, uh, up, summed it up really. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And then he says, let's just see. The Christians say we should be like the Ten Commandments. Let's see how I do. And so he says, have no other gods before me. Well, I don't have any gods at all, so I don't have anyone before him. Therefore, I get that one. Check mark. 
He says, don't have any carved images. I wouldn't put a shrine up in my house. I don't think there are any gods anyway. Check mark. Don't take God's name in vain. Now here, you may take issue with him, but he basically says the bigger problem is that people take God's name and then it means nothing to them because they bear it and then dishonor God with it. And I think that's really the right way to understand that commandment. So in this one moment, his exegesis is tolerable. He says, but I don't do that. I don't take God's name to anything. So I don't, I don't do that one. Check. I work six days and rest one. Check. Honor my parents. If anybody gets it, I suppose I do. Check. And he goes through all ten that way and gives himself a surface reading of what those commandments are and says, I pass. I'm as good a Christian as anybody else. And you see how this atheist blasphemes God because he looks at Christians and says, I'm at least as good and moral as they are. And because of us, God is blasphemed. Now you may say, yeah, but that's because he knows some other Christians who are really hypocritical. I'm not hypocritical. Well, I'll just ask this. Let's suppose one of those TV shows wanted to do a reality show of your life. Would you want to be the poster child for Christianity? This is what Christianity looks like. My guess is none of us would want that. None of us would feel up to that uh, responsibility. I don't want people to know everything about me because I fear it would blaspheme Christ. You see, we're all underneath this, this big problem. And so we find that our good doctrine isn't enough. Look, he gives you a couple more. I'm going to go real fast. Verse 25, For circumcision indeed is of value. If you obey the law but break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Circumcision was the entry requirement into Judaism. It was a picture felt intimately that God would cut away the sinfulness of our heart. But it was always meant to be a picture on the surface of an inward reality. And what it had become was someone who said, I've had circumcision. I'm part of the Jewish community. I'm in. And it did not matter anything else. And so it stayed on the surface for them. And Paul said, that's not enough. Now today, that would be something like this. I've been baptized. Therefore, I'm in. I've been admitted to church membership. Therefore, I'm in. My church says it's okay for me to take communion. Therefore, I'm in. I've made the right statements, and I answered the questions properly. I'm in. When I was at Vacation Bible School, I filled out the card. When I was at the Christian camp, I prayed the prayer. When I am at church, I'm part of the committees, and I do the work. I teach Sunday school class. I'm in. And what Paul is saying is, all those things are good things. Listen, it is a good thing to pray a prayer and ask Jesus to save you. It is a good thing to participate in the life of the church, to share in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are good things. But if they stay on the surface, if all the baptism does is wash some dirt from your skin, but it does not represent the inward change that faith has brought, Paul says it's empty. And the only kind of church work that really matters is that which comes from the heart brought about by the change affected by the Spirit of God. Verse 29, But a Jew is one inwardly, 
And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. You see, at the end of the day, we must rely completely and entirely on the Holy Spirit to produce this real life. It's the Holy Spirit who says, I'll make it more than a surface thing. It will be the heart that's changed and it begins to flow out and every part of you is this religious person. It's not that the religious activities that Paul describes are bad. Good doctrine is good. Participation in the life of the church is good. It's just not enough. I think it was um, one of the early 1900s evangelists who said this, going to church no more makes you a Christian than going to a garage makes you a car. And that's right. But if that inward work has happened by the Spirit, there's faith and there's trust and all of this begins to flow out from the inside. If you are relying on your religious work to make you commendable to God, it's empty. If you're relying on the Spirit to make you religious, it's real. And you can get one taste, one little piece that Paul's going to give you as to how you can tell the difference. At the end of verse 29, this real person who's inwardly a Jew, who's inwardly a believer, who's affected by the Spirit of God, his praise is not from man, but from God. You see, most of us, what we do is we do our religious things, we do our moral things, we keep them on the surface, and you know what? That's all that my neighbor cares about. Just like the IRS, just like that state trooper, the only thing the person who sits next to me at church cares about is what they can see. Because it's the only thing we have access to. And I can fool most people and most of the time. I can wear the right look and the right clothes and the right appearance and I can look very religious, but I cannot hide my heart from the Holy Spirit. You see, at the end of the day, if you are saying, what do other people say of me? That is what you want most. You can be very religious and it can be very empty and you can still be under condemnation. But, if you are set on the idea that I want God's praise, I want His opinion of me more than I care about anyone else's, then all of a sudden it fills all that religious work with real meaning. It fills all of that doctrine with meaning. I want to believe these things because I want God. I want to be faithful in my church service because I want God. Do you see the difference? One says, I want to be my own Savior and I'll do it by being religious. The other says, I want the Holy Spirit to change me and I only care what God thinks. Now, how do we get from here to here? At the end of the day, you must rely on the Spirit of God. We can't change our hearts. We can't get to that part of us. And so we need by the Spirit. We need a matter of the heart inwardly by God's Spirit. He must Come in and renovate the whole thing. If you desire that, I want you to know that's the Spirit's first uh, expression of Himself in your life. If you desire Him to change you, know that's the Spirit already at work. Pray and let Him and, and say, "Take over, change the whole thing. I want the whole thing 
to be what you want it to be. The Sheraton Hotels system took over that building in St. Louis, and they went inside and started on the inside, the parts you couldn't see, and began to renovate it. Turned the bottom two floors into parking garages, took the next few floors and made them into suites for like hotel purposes and really nice ones. Took the top floors, uh, three or four, and made them into condos. The top four condos sell for north of $500,000. You see, this building has actually become alive. It's become a place where people want to be. It's beautiful now, not on three sides, but inside and out. Because someone came and said, I'm going to start at the heart and make it better. Listen, that's real Christianity. It goes to the heart and says, I'll make it better from the inside out. And that person is the Holy Spirit working through Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are very prone to trust our religion. That's the most dangerous thing of them all is we feel like being religious is what you wanted. But what you want are people who are for Christ through and through. And all we can do is affect the surface. So we cast ourselves on the mercy of your Spirit. Heal us. Redeem us. Remake us. Give us righteousness that we could never earn. Give us the righteousness of Christ. It's revealed in the gospel because our religion won't save us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you to take your hymnals and turn to him.